Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. One of the fascinating ways by which Canadians can come to better understand this country is through its history, of course. But not just any history. The history of the various towns and cities throughout the land. Today... We are doing just that. We are taking a deep dive into the history of the town of Gravenhurst, Ontario, a city built on historically important indigenous land, a city that was once destroyed by fire, a city that birthed a famous Canadian, was visited by Scandinavian royalty, held German prisoners of war, and became both a logging and tourist destination for the Muskoka region. This is Season 7, Episode 13, Gravenhurst, The Gateway City. Today's podcast is written by Craig Baird. Craig is the creator and host of Canadian History X, E-H-X, as well as From John to Justin, Pucks and Cups, Coast to Coast, and Canada's Great War. He is Canada's most prolific podcaster. Now, you can find all his podcasts on all podcast platforms, and be sure to follow him on Twitter at Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And thus today, in lieu of a book recommendation, we are doing a podcast recommendation. And that is Canadian History X. Yes, I know, another Canadian history podcast. But we love all our Canadian history podcasters here at CCH, and Craig is one of the best. So check him and check his podcast out. The area of Gravenhurst, before it was ever home to a thriving community, was the domain of the Indigenous the Ojibwe and the Mississauga were the most prevalent indigenous nations in pre-colonial times. 
Gravenhurst sits along the shores of Lake Muskoka, which was named for Chief Meskauke, or Muskeki, whose name meant not easily turned back in the day of battle. Chief Meskauke was one of the signatories of Treaty 16 in November 1815. The chief was so respected by the Upper Canada government that a home was built for him in Orillia, where he would live until his death, at the age of 95. Now, Europeans would begin to arrive in the area around the early 1600s, beginning with Samuel de Champlain. He was followed by missionaries and later fur traders with the Hudson's Bay Company. Eventually, settlers themselves saw the potential of the area and began to put down roots. Now, originally, the area was known as McCabe's Landing, in honor of James McCabe and his family, who had settled in the area. They would lead guiding expeditions on Lake Muskoka, arguably the first tourist venture in the history of the community. For a time, the name of the community would be Sawdust City, due to the number of sawmills found in the community, but by the latter part of the 1800s, the current name of Gravenhurst was eventually chosen. This was by a postal official who happened to be reading the treaties by William Smith, Gravenhurst, or Thoughts on Good and Evil. On September 23, 1887, Gravenhurst, still a young community, would suffer one of its worst disasters when fire tore through it. At 1.15 p.m., a fire broke out in the Maori and Sons foundry. Unfortunately for the residents of Gravenhurst, a strong wind was blowing in from the north, fanning the flames towards Main Street. In a short time, the entire business portion of the town had burned to the ground. Sparks and burning wood carried by the wind spread the fire quickly. Even the home and barn of John Hewitt, 1.2 kilometers away from the fire, was destroyed. As soon as the fire was discovered, the steam fire engine was brought out. The engine quickly broke down, however, and it was not until the fire had spread throughout the community that it was up and working again. A dispatch was sent to nearby Aurelia asking for a fire engine, but this request was refused, with Aurelia's mayor stating it was needed at home. Help would come from Bracebridge and Barry, however, but too late to do any good. By 4 p.m. that day, the fire had burned itself out. The loss of the buildings and their contents was estimated to be about $200,000 at the time, or roughly $5 million today. The Ottawa Daily Citizen reported, and I quote, The inhabitants of this prostrated town are standing the great calamity with composure. The homeless ones have been well encouraged by their more fortunate neighbors, which with timely aid received yesterday in the way of provisions, has had a very reassuring effect and a hopeful spirit now prevails. End quote. In all, 83 buildings were destroyed in the fire, including 50 businesses. While no deaths were reported, 45 families were left homeless. The Manitoba Weekly Free Press reported, and I quote, The fire which swept over this town this morning is a crushing blow and will occasion much suffering as the weather is now turning cold. End quote. The local MPP, the member of the provincial parliament, G.F. Martin, would head to Toronto to get provincial assistance for the victims of the fire. 
after the fire, Toronto SafeWorks would use the disaster to push sales of their safes. In the October 21st, 1887 edition of the Montreal Gazette, the company published a list of letters allegedly received from happy safe owners in Gravenhurst. One letter sent by B.R. Mowry would state, again I quote, We were amongst the unfortunate ones here on the 23rd of September, being burned out in our great fire. But our safe of your make saved our books and papers to our entire satisfaction. End quote. The people of Gravenhurst would learn from the fire. Soon after the disaster, a proper fire department was established. Ironically, the town hall and fire hall survived the 1887 fire, but ten years later, both buildings burned to the ground. The same year that the fire tore through Gravenhurst, the RMS Nipissing was built and ready to cruise along Muskoka Lake. At the time, the ship would transport people to communities along the shores of the lake to the various cottages. It also served as a Royal Mail ship. We will talk more about this ship a little later. On August 19th, 1887, the Brantford Weekly Expositor would print the travels of a reporter who was not identified, but it is one of the first times the Nipissing appears in print, and it would state, I quote, Gravenhurst is a struggling, lumbering town as far as seen. Through the railway takes us direct to the wharf where the fine steamer Nipissing was in waiting to receive us. Here we met Mr. A.P. Cockburn, ex-MP, the general manager of the Muskoka and Nipissing Navigation Company, who had every provision for our comfort and accompanied us on the trip. End quote. The article describes the boats that traverse the lake, describing it as a good service and substantial pleasure. Now, nearby to Gravenhurst, you will find three lakes called Upper Muldrew Lake, Middle Muldrew Lake, and South Muldrew Lake. Together, these three lakes make up Lake Muldrew. Today, there are 300 cottages on the lakes, but a century ago, there were far fewer. The second person to have a cottage on the lake was Dr. William Hawthorne Muldrew. Not only the namesake of the lake, he was also the principal of the first Gravenhurst High School in 1894. In 1901, he would publish a book called Sylvan, Ontario, A Guide to Our Native Trees and Shrubs. This was the first book published on the subject in Ontario. All the drawings inside the book were his own. By the 1920s, people hoped to get past the terrible years of the First World War. At the time, six steamers on the lakes were running, but it was decided by the Muskoka Lakes Navigation Company that more were needed to keep up with demand. The Nipissing had been decommissioned by this point, but the decision was made to convert it to a walking beam engine with two counter-rotating propellers rather than build an entirely new ship. Through the fall and winter of 1924-25, the ship was converted in a dockyard at Gravenhurst. The ship was then launched in June 1925, just in time for the summer passenger season. Due to the extensive alterations on the ship, she was renamed the Seguin, which means springtime in the Ojibwe language. Following the Second World War, the ship was once again remodeled to make more room for staterooms on the ship and an open space on the deck was closed in. Unfortunately, 
the times were changing, and passenger numbers were declining, and that meant the ship's days were numbered. On top of that, in 1958, the ship would hit the swing bridge at Port Carling, then hit a concrete dock. That same year, 1958, the Seguin and the Sagamo were taken out of service. The Seguin would be moored at the town dock in Gravenhurst and restored through the 1970s. In 1981, it was put back into service on the lake. It continues to sail on the lake to this day, offering sightseeing excursions as well as lunch and sunset dinners. The Sioux Star reported upon the ship's relaunching, I quote, The Royal Mail Ship Seguin, last of the Muskoka Lake steamers, will make her first public cruise in 22 years on June 27th, if final sea trials this weekend go well. End quote. In 1987, this very ship was honored with a commemorative stamp from Canada Post. The ship is one of only three in the world that still carry a Royal Mail ship designation. It is also the oldest steam-powered vessel still in use in Canada and likely North America. Now, back on March 4th, 1890, a very famous man was born in Gravenhurst, and we'll find out who he was right after the break. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Folks, if you're looking for ad-free content from Cool Canadian History, look no further. Sign up to Patreon today. All you need to do is donate one or two or three or four or five bucks to the podcast via Patreon per episode. It automatically sets that up for you, and you can access all of our episodes for free without any advertisement or sponsorship content. So that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com. Sign up today. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Who was that famous Gravenhurst-born Canadian, you ask? Well, his name was Norman Bethune, who was a distant relative of both Christopher Plummer and Prime Minister Sir John Abbott. Bethune was born on March 4, 1890, and he would become a highly influential doctor in Canada, Spain, and pretty much a hero in China. He attended Owen Sound Collegiate Institute and briefly worked as a teacher, but his true love was medicine. This led him to the University of Toronto in 1912 to pursue a medical degree. Unfortunately, war would come calling before he could finish it. During the First World War, he served with the Royal Canadian Army Medical Corps as a stretcher bearer in France. At the Second Battle of Ypres, he was wounded by shrapnel and thus returned to Canada in 1915. A year later, he returned to the University of Toronto and earned his medical degree. When the Great Depression began, Bethune became an early adopter of universal health care and often helped patients for no payment in return. 
He, in fact, traveled to the Soviet Union in 1935 to view universal free health care firsthand. And it was at this time he also became a member of the Communist Party of Canada. In 1936, he went to Spain and arrived in Madrid on November 3rd. He was unable to find a place to work as a surgeon, so he came up with the idea of creating a mobile blood transfusion service that allowed him to take donated blood to wounded soldiers on the front line fighting in the Spanish Civil War. Now, this was the first system of its kind in the world. Bethune would return to Canada on June 6, 1937, and he embarked on a speaking tour to raise money for volunteers for the Spanish Civil War. And in one of his speeches, he said, and I quote, I am a doctor, a surgeon. My job is to sustain human life in all its beauty and vigor. I am not a politician, but I went to Spain because the politicians betrayed Spain and tried to drag the rest of us into their betrayal. With varying accents and with varying degrees of hypocrisy, the politicians who ruled that democratic Spain must die. It was my belief, as it is now, my conviction that democratic Spain must live. End quote. In January 1938, Bethune went to China to help the Chinese communists under Mao Zedong. He would perform emergency battlefield surgery while also training rural doctors, nurses, and orderlies. He was devoted to helping and, in fact, treated soldiers on both sides of the conflict. On October 29, 1939, he cut his middle finger while taking bone fragments out of a soldier's wounded leg. The wound reopened during surgery three days later, and it became infected. Dr. Bethune died on November 12, 1939. Just over two weeks later, the Regina Leader Post reported, and I quote, Dr. Norman Bethune, reported dead in China, might be termed by some a red, certainly the man was red-blooded, where there was a blow to be struck for justice, where there might be an opportunity to serve humanity, to alleviate human suffering and pain, this able and fearless 49-year-old physician and surgeon wanted to be actively there. End quote. Chairman Mao himself would publish in memory of Norman Bethune, which became required reading in Chinese schools in the 1960s. Today, Bethune is one of the few Westerners in China who have actual dedicated statues. Several buildings and universities are named for Bethune in China. It took until the 1970s, however, for Bethune to be honored in Canada, and that came after Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau visited China. Bethune was made a person of national historic significance, and the manse of the Presbyterian Church, where he was born in Gravenhurst, was bought by the government of Canada and named the Bethune Memorial House. Today, it is a national historic site of Canada. In August of 2000, Governor General Adrian Clarkson visited Gravenhurst and unveiled a statue of Bethune in front of the Opera House on Muskoka Road. Now, back during the Second World War, the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan was vital to ensuring there were enough pilots for the Battle of Britain and later the entire Western Allied Air Force, i.e. the liberation of Europe and onwards. Commonwealth pilots were not the only troops training in Canada and in the Muskoka region, though. 
When Nazi Germany invaded Norway in April of 1940, a government in exile was established in England by King Haken. Along with the king, 120 Norwegian sailors and pilots escaped to England, and they would form the Royal Norwegian Air Force. The men were sent to Canada to train at their own camp on the Toronto Islands. It was soon evident, however, that the island was not big enough for the troops, and they were relocated in 1942 to just south of Gravenhurst at the Muskoka Aerodrome. On May 4, 1942, Crown Prince Olav opened this new Little Norway. The Crown Prince and his wife, Crown Princess Martha, had arrived by car from Toronto and were honored with a civic reception in Gravenhurst before having lunch in the men's mess of Little Norway. Now, the Montreal Gazette reported on this event, and it read, and I quote, The camp consists of a large new log building, a hangar, and a converted barn. The log building contains barracks, mess halls, and recreation rooms. Additional barracks are contained in the converted barn. End quote. The soldiers would soon purchase a recreational facility near Huntsville and named it Vesli Skogum, after the home of King Hackham. What started with only a few soldiers who escaped Nazi-occupied Norway would end up training 3,000 Norwegian men and women for active service or for working in various support services. If you drive to the Muskoka Airport in Gravenhurst now, you will find the Little Norway Memorial. This memorial commemorates the lives of the pilots who trained in the area. As part of the dedication of this memorial, King Harold of Norway signed an inscribed piece of the memorial when he visited the area in May of 2002. This has been placed at the floor of the memorial. In fact, the Little Norway Memorial is the property of the government of Norway and is managed by the Norwegian embassy. Now, while Norwegian soldiers and pilots and accessories were training nearby to free their homeland, German prisoners of war were kept at Camp 20 in Gravenhurst. Built on the land formerly occupied by the Minnewaska Hotel and later a sanatorium for tuberculosis patients, life at Camp 20 was surprisingly pleasant for the prisoners. Not only did it feature a swimming pool and comfortable rooms, but prisoners also built themselves an aquarium and even a small zoo. The zoo had a monkey and a black bear, which, according to some sources, the prisoners would wrestle to stay in shape. Prisoners also grew gardens and smoked sausages, which were harvested from local livestock. By 1940, Camp 20 held 489 prisoners, and they would work on projects throughout Gravenhurst, including at Gull Lake Park, where stone steps remain to this day built by the prisoners of war. The POWs would also build the lighthouse in the park, and prisoners were sometimes even paid a small wage for working in local lumber camps and most, frankly, had friendly relationships with their guards and local people. Even with the nice conditions, however, escape attempts still occurred and guards were told to shoot to kill if anyone attempted to get through the wire. During one escape attempt in the winter of 1944, guards were unable to shoot because other prisoners were standing in the way. By the end of the war, there were approximately 250 prisoners in the camp. Today, all that remains of Camp 20 
are the concrete pillars, a fire hydrant, and part of the fence. There is an information kiosk at the location that provides detailed information and photos and history about the camp. Now, the most recognizable part of Gravenhurst is Muskoka Wharf, an 89-acre piece of water and land that celebrates the heritage of the community. Today, the wharf has hotels, restaurants, and stores, but in the 1860s, it was where logs would be shipped out from Gravenhurst to be used both in the United States and Canada. Over time, the beauty of the area attracted tourists, and those tourists started to spend their time at the wharf. While more tourists were arriving through the early 1900s, that also meant the end of the original use of the wharf. Steamships were no longer traveling the lake in their previous numbers, and cars were bringing in tourists who drove to their cottages and other tourist spots in the area. This created a decline in the economy of the wharf, but this decline wouldn't last forever. In 1992, the annual farmer's market was established, which runs continually to this day. In 2005, $170 million was invested into developing the 89-acre property, turning it from an industrial property to a tourist destination. Today, 80,000 tourists and visitors come to the wharf each year to visit the stores and restaurants. Now, also at the wharf, you will find the Muskoka Steamships and Discovery Center. In this 20,000-square-foot museum, the exhibits highlight the history of Gravenhurst and the role that Muskoka Lake played in that history. The museum also features an augmented reality sand table that allows you to build mountains, rivers, and lakes. The biggest exhibit is the RMS Seguin, where you can watch three movies, The Restoration of the Seguin, 100 Mile Cruise, and Dry Docking of Our Ships. Thus, Gravenhurst has been a small part of a larger national historical narrative of development. It has seen the effects of an angry mother nature. It has been affected by war. It has connected to the international landscape through its people and its location. And it has helped connect Canadians to each other. Truly a gateway city. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find me on Twitter at at DocBoris, that's D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. And you can find this podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon, as well as on all podcast platforms. And feel free to leave us a comment and a rating. We love to hear from you. Stay cool, friends.